You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Sarah Custer, your host and editor of THE Campus. In Edie and I work, it's that last element, inclusion, that tends to be the most ambiguous, making it difficult to measure and difficult to improve. Yet, it's a big part of how universities present themselves. Just take a look at any institutional mission or vision statement. For example, quote, the University of Oxford is committed to fostering an inclusive culture which promotes equality, values diversity, and maintains a working, learning, and social environment in which the rights and dignity of all staff and students are respected. Or, quote, serving the interests of the campus community means incorporating inclusion, equity, and belonging into teaching practices as well as into life outside of the classroom, says the University of Texas at Austin in its inclusion plan. A recent analysis of inclusion policies at the UK's elite 24 Russell Group institutions found that most of them treat inclusion as a selling point, a new performance and quality index. Ambiguities, debates, and tensions around inclusion were largely ignored. The researchers at the University of Exeter argue that selectivity in higher education sits uncomfortably with inclusion, if it is interpreted as welcoming students without exception. However, if inclusion is about academic and social participation within an institution, then universities can work towards balancing different student learning needs and requirements and enhancing community belonging. That is where Freeman Rabowski, the outgoing president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, has focused his efforts. During his 30-year tenure, he has transformed UMBC from a small branch of the University System of Maryland into one of the leading producers of Black STEM graduates in the country. UMBC's stated vision, by the way, is, quote, our UMBC community redefines excellence in higher education through an inclusive culture that connects innovative teaching and learning, research across disciplines, and civic engagement. In this interview, Freeman talks about how to have the difficult conversations that identify where students' needs are not being met, how UMBC uses granular data to identify students who might be falling behind, and how inclusivity work is the tide that raises all boats so everyone benefits. Just put some stats in front of you, Freeman, that I think you will be familiar with, but I think that our listeners, not all of them will be familiar with. So in 10 years, UMBC has increased its six-year graduation rate for full-time freshmen from 56% for the fall 2005 cohort to almost 70% for the fall 2014 cohort. Yes. About 25% of your current student body is made up of first-generation college students. Uh You are now the nation's number one producer of black bachelor's degree recipients who go on to earn a PhD in the natural sciences and engineering. Mm -hmm. And you have increased the tenured and tenure track faculty who are black, Latinx or Native American from 9% in 2011 to almost 15% in 2020. So you are improving student retention and graduation rates. Mm -hmm. You're extending access to first generation students. You're creating career opportunities for minority academics. UMBC is making good on your mission to be inclusive of an institution. 
But what I want to know is how. So I know that you are a mathematician, so I hope you appreciate this question. Yeah. But if you had to boil down the success into a formula, what sure. would it be? Sure. The, the, our latest book, um, my colleagues and I wrote, was entitled The Empowered University. And the theme is being empowered to look in the mirror at self and to be honest with self. I think too often in higher education around the world, we will talk about the, the great success and the anecdotal information, but we don't look at the data to see mm. what's happening. Mm. And for us, being honest with ourselves years ago led us, led us to, to, to decide that we needed to do much more to help more students succeed. Mm-hmm. And one of the areas where we needed to place a great deal of emphasis was on success in STEM, which is what my TED talk talks about. It is the four pillars of college success in science and the first great expectations, high expectations, but not just of the students, but also of ourselves. When I think about what universities can do to improve success of students, I think about our as institutions and educators asking that question. Yes, we want students to work hard, but what else can we do Mm. to ensure the success or to increase the probability that students will succeed? So for us, that had everything to do with innovation grants to faculty, to our course redesign initiatives, to building community, as we talk about in the TED talk, uh, to have students working collaboratively, Mm -hmm. to more feedback regularly, to using analytics in the work. And most important, this notion that it takes people in a discipline or profession to pull others into it. So if it's journalism, it takes journalists to pull others into that work. If Mm -hmm. it's art, the arts, if it's science, it takes scientists to produce scientists. So a lot of hands-on experiences that connect the students in real life situations, all those things have made a big difference on our Mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. You said it was about, um, looking in a mirror and that to yes. me seems like you had some maybe some difficult conversations some maybe come to Jesus talks with yourself yeah, yeah, about yeah, kind yeah. of what you needed to do in the 30 sure. years you've been at UMBC tell sure. me how you fil- facilitated those with your colleagues sure. you know I the, the first sentence in that new book is it's not about me it's about us we tend to think in our in the world in every country we think about the one leader as mm. opposed to thinking about how do we empower people to be the leaders they can be. And so it wasn't just about me, it was about a number of faculty saying, we want our students to do much better. And let's look and see what that means. And it meant everything from looking with specificity at where students were not succeeding, looking by course, a course in the calculus sequence, where you may have 12 sections and you see that the grades are widely distributed, but that some sections seem to be more helpful to students than others. Some mm-hmm. faculty are uh, seemingly having a better level of success, a higher level of success than others. How do we learn from each other? And those are tough conversations because right. it's not about pointing fingers at people. It's about saying, who's doing the best job? How do we learn from those people? What are best practices, not just at UMBC, but in other places that we can learn from? And that's when, for example, the Chemistry Discovery Center, the center, which the CDC, which does not stand for disease, as I say, mm, chemistry okay. discovery, but <laughs> it, it, it does focus on best practices in teaching chemistry in the first two years and, and having these groups of people working together, using technology, more feedback, and, and, and asking faculty, asking faculty, what's happening in your classroom? What's going well? What's not going well? But we also did it in, in the humanities. The humanities faculty were very interested in innovating and using digital humanities, for example, and then imaging and digital arts and ways of connecting disciplines. 
And it was about everybody opening our minds to say, how might we do this differently? How do mm -hmm. we connect more students? How do we understand what their strengths are and build on those while addressing the challenges or the deficiencies students might have also? Honesty, which can only occur when there's a level of trust. So building right. trust among people to talk about the real deal, who's succeeding by, by gender, by race, by economic level, and mm -hmm. who is not. Mm -hmm. For example, around America, for example, we know that we have far too few women in computer science. Mm -hmm. Well, having those hard conversations, what are the experiences of the, the women who are there? What, are, what would they say about how they felt treated or respected or not? Um, why is it that we don't have more women in computer science when we have about half the people in math who are mm -hmm. women? And mm -hmm. so having those conversations and building community to, so that we have a center for women in IT, uh, they're called CWIT scholars who become the ambassadors who understand these issues and who begin to talk about them as they work to help pull younger women into computer science. So mm -hmm. it's getting students involved as well as faculty and staff in addressing whatever the issue is and mm -hmm. being honest about it. It sounds like a good amount of listening as well to the mm -hmm. people who you're trying to support and help. Exactly. And so the other point is a, a good amount of asking good questions. Mm -hmm. I often quote I.I. Robbie, the Nobel laureate, who um, said when he was growing up in New York, all of his friends' mothers would ask their sons and daughters, what'd you learn in school today? He said, but not my Jewish mother. My mother would say, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? Mm. And that practice of encouraging the curiosity made him the thinker he became. We talk about empowering the institution to ask good questions, those questions that can lead to the insightful and tough conversations that give you approaches that you can use to make things better. I read about the um, finish line near completer re-engagement initiative yeah. that you guys launched yeah. during the pandemic, yeah. where yeah. you saw an opportunity of having all these online classes, an opportunity to really engage students from UMBC who had dropped out. And it just yeah. struck me as an incredibly creative initiative, but also yeah. shows that that deep understanding of your students and their needs. Sure. So you've mentioned community, honesty, um, listening, asking your questions. How much does creativity play into the work of inclusivity? Oh, I, I think it's so important. And when I think about creativity, innovation, I, it, it, what's behind it all is this notion that tomorrow can be better than today. If we can be empowered to think out of the box and to just ask the questions that have not been asked before, or to say things that may sound crazy, not reasonable, just to get responses and to get the conversation going. And the people in enrollment management were amazing in saying, what would it take to support more students who never graduated? And mm -hmm. that means using the analytics to see who they are. Mm -hmm. But it also means listening again to people who dropped out, who stopped for any number of reasons, and to say, what would it take to help you finish that last 30 credits, for example? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, we've had focus groups with some of those students. And one of the things they said that was so simple and yet so profound, uh, they said, somebody cared about me. Mm -hmm. They wanted to know why I left. And now I'm 32 years old. And they're saying it's not too late that there are people my age in college. I was worried I'd be embarrassed mm -hmm. of seeing people much younger, for example. They right, said, but just right. the fact that someone cared. Yeah. And wanted to hear my story and then had suggestions of ways we could pay for it. 
right? And then the flexibility to have the hybrid situation, some in, in person, some online, understanding my work schedule made all the difference in the world. And mm-hmm. they are the most grateful people you could imagine because they don't take anything for granted. They, you know, when you get to your 30s, you've been through life, you've been knocked down in different mm-hmm. ways, you know, and you're trying to figure it out still in some kind, in some ways, and you almost close certain doors. And then when you realize the door isn't closed, mm-hmm. I can still do this. And this is one of the points I would make, not just for our, our country, but in general, there's so many adults who have not completed their education because they are tied up with life circumstances and they don't necessarily have the confidence. They, they don't want to be embarrassed or they're thinking, well, I've forgotten everything I learned. And let me tell you what I always say. Anyone who gets to that point in life, you get over 25 all the way into your 50s or whatever, you're, those life's experiences give you that PhD in life. <laughs> and those are the same skills that you've developed, the ability to express yourself, to analyze, to think critically. That will be required for completing any degree. Mm. You know, and so mm-hmm. helping them understand they know more than they think they know. They may not have forgotten some facts, but they've learned how to think well. And that's at the heart of a, of a broad education. Also, what UMBC has done there is what you said, just showing them that you care and giving yep. them a, a second opportunity, but also creating the kind of infrastructure there that's needed yeah. because higher education is set up for kids who graduate when they're 18 and go on and, and finish yep. in four to six years. It's not necessarily yeah. set up for people yeah. who have stopped for whatever reason to come back in. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't realize how many people though are coming back who are not that traditional 18 to 24 mm-hmm. and finishing degrees. And the other thing I would say is this, that, that we've got these wonderful programs that were for individualized studies. So one can put together a program based on former courses and experiences in order to have a, a, a major that's been particularly individualized to your interests and your strengths. And that's, that's different from saying you have to be rigidly in a major. Mm. There are ways of solving or addressing problems and creating one's own program based on courses taken, interests, and expertise. Mm-hmm. And, and that allows for greater flexibility. Mm-hmm. And the goal, remember, we, we have to help people understand the goal of an education, when we talk about a broad liberal education, is to uh, help people learn how to learn. It's not that we can tell them everything they need mm-hmm. to know. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you get people to the point where they have this lust for learning and they know how to learn, whether it is a language or a computer skill, whatever it is, um, the ability to do the research, to ask the questions, and to go to those uh, sources to learn new things. That, mm-hmm. that, that is what it means to be educated. I often quote Beckett, the Irish novelist who often wrote in French, uh, in a novel, he's talking, the character's talking about the dancing of bees. And when bees are dancing, they're communicating. And the character says this, Malloy, he says, here's something I could study all my life and never understand. But he says it with great rapture. He's fascinated because the more he studies the dancing of the bees, the more he begins to understand how they communicate. But the more he understands, the more he realizes he's just scratching the surface. There's so much more to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, that, if there's one thing we could give students as, as they leave college is that that itch that that you've never satisfied. There's more to learn, right? That lust for learning and mm-hmm. having the ability to know how to go about learning it. I'm learning French. Everybody knows I'm learning French now. I didn't start until my late 60s. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm learning, 
And yeah, and, and many students, Bluzier Etudion et Umbe Se Parfum Se Curimo. So I'm, and, and my students said, don't you think you're kind of old? <laughs> said, Bring it on, right? It's the <laughs> idea of loving learning. I think as we get older, we appreciate learning more and more. And the more you appreciate it, the more you do it. And the more you do something, whether it's math or playing the piano or studying French, the better you become. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and here's the, this is the part though that I say to my students who have, uh, whose language, first language is French, for example, the more I'm getting into this language and studying the philosophers, the more I realize I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. Because language, layers, you study, uh, vous parlez et, uh, espanol, for example. Correctamente, you know, correctamente, hablo espanol, si. Sí. Oui, oui. <laughs> I'm always telling people, si vous parlez lentement, je peux comprendre, peut-être. If you speak slowly, right? Right, right. I might right. be able to understand, yeah. That's exactly, but it's so much more than just translating words because there are layers of meaning, uh, cultural context, and uh, the, the fascination with something you don't know seems to be one of the characteristics of people who are broadly educated. And that's what we are saying that in different ways here. How do we help people become excited about learning mm-hmm. and not and not frustrated when they don't have the answer? Also maybe saying that learning is for you and that these these environments are for you and you are yes. welcome here and yes. here yes. to support you. And our students are at the center. The students and the ideas are at the center of the UMBC experience. Uh, we are all we see ourselves, faculty and administrators. We see our, all of us. We see ourselves as students. We're all continuing to learn, and that's a part of the research. A lot of emphasis on undergrad to grad research and people writing papers, but people being involved in the communities and studying the big issues of the day, from the academic achievement gap to the economic disparities to the public health crisis we face. All of those are that's at the heart of much of what. We do at UMBC and a lot of universities. And I think though, what has made the difference for us is that the students are our partners in this work. Mm. We're not opening their heads and pouring in knowledge. We are teaching and learning and asking questions and listening. Retrieve a grateful has everything to do with uh, this and retrieve a courage. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay Retriever is our dog, right? Yeah. And, and his name is True Grit, True Grit. So we call UMBC the house of grit, the idea of just the hard work and the intensity of curiosity, you see. Mm. And people, whether people are studying a Beckett play or they're overdoing research on AIDS, it's that hunger Mm. that has people being admired on the campus. You you really admire somebody who has been diving into a problem and struggling to understand it. And that's that's the essence of education. And we like to say of the UMBC experience. You've also um, shepherded in a large number of scholarship programs. You've got the McNair Scholars. You've got the Meyerhoff Scholars Program. We even now have the Freeman Hrabowski Scholarship Program through the Howard <laughs> Medical Institute. Right. Um, what advice would you give to people who might be looking to replicate some of your successes there and really creating those financial structures to help students? Sure. Sure. They, and, they, and the Howard Hughes Program is really wonderful. HHMI in that they have worked with us to replicate Meyerhoff at Chapel Hill and Penn State. We're replicating that program for minorities and others in science, also at Berkeley and San Diego with money from Chan Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. But the new HHMI program that they've named after me, that money doesn't come to UMBC, that's for the country. And that's that's Mm -hmm. a billion and a half, right? Mm -hmm. And that's to help faculty who wanna help diversify the science and engineering 
this particularly the science workforce, the STEM workforce. And what's nice about that, that's for faculty of, of all races who will work though, women and people of color to help people in general and people uh, of minority backgrounds, underrepresented groups to get into STEM. In all those cases, I would say this, looking at best practices, this is what HHMI is doing. Um, and it's also what we do with our affiliation with the University Innovation Alliance. We're very proud to be a part of that group because mm -hmm. that's another group that focuses heavily on innovation. And we work with them on student success in some very special ways in looking at particular populations, disaggregating data and understanding, again, women in engineering, for example, or first-generation college students in certain disciplines. How are they doing? What are their issues? And most important, how do we have what we talked about earlier, the tough conversations? Mm -hmm. What do they think about this experience? Are we showing them that we are embracing them and bringing them into the work? Or do they feel like they're on the periphery? Mm -hmm. That's it, bringing people into the work. And for, for first-generation college students especially, and students of color, it's so important to make sure they are a part of, not on the, on the fringes of what's going on at the university to get them connected. Sure, That's the sure, one. yeah. And it's that, that real sense of, when we talk about inclusivity, for me, that really means kind of belonging and knowing yeah. that you are where you should yeah. be and that you are yeah. supported and you have people around you that want, to, want you to succeed and yeah. are there to help you succeed. And I know that you, as an individual, a lot of people know your background about growing up in segregated South and also yeah. along your academic career, perhaps being in environments where you maybe didn't feel that you belonged. How much How much has your experience there really fed into the culture that you've created at UMBC over the past 30 years? Very much so in that the message I heard from my community uh, and parents and teachers and ministers, the message was the same. It was that I, I needed to have a sense of self. I needed to believe in myself. And that's a part of our fundamental approach at UMBC. We must help our students to believe in themselves, to mm -hmm. not let anyone else define who they are. And we must not assume we know them by outside appearance mm -hmm. because people are different, even with any group. We can't lump women together or blacks together or Latinos together. People are individuals mm -hmm. and we need to appreciate each person for what she brings to the table. And she needs to know that we believe in her. Mm. Very important. And that's that was the lesson of all the lessons as a child uh, that I learned. It was I needed to believe in myself, that working hard and asking questions and getting connected and never, never, never giving up would be critical to my future. And that's the message of UMBC is exactly that message. Um, I have one more question for you, Freeman. Um, and inclusivity work is difficult. We know yes. that it's difficult, especially when higher education remains full of elite institutions, white majority institutions. Yes. What would you like people working in higher education to know about inclusivity? That, first of all, when we use that word, we should look carefully at what it means. It does mean all of us. That the, the ascendancy of one group just shouldn't mean the downward movement of another group, mm -hmm. that we are not talking about a fixate, a fixed pie and you're gonna take from one group because sometimes people get uncomfortable when they think, oh, they're just taking from the opportunities we have. No, no, that somehow this notion of inclusive excellence means we will do so well, we'll make the pie bigger for all of us. 
for our country globally, you know, the more we support people from all backgrounds and the more talent we have and the more we can bring all that talent to focus on the challenges that we face, the, the better it will be for all of us that this is not just to help one group. This is to help all of us. I use the civil rights movement uh, and examples of, of white men who have said, as I've spoken, gotten up and said in, from Georgia and who said, you know, you think the civil rights movement was for blacks and women. He said, but, but I was a, I, my, my mother was a sharecropper because dad was dead. And uh, you see me now as a rich white guy who's a CEO, but it was only because I saw the little black kids going to college that my mom knew to send me to college outside of Atlanta. Wow. And I went and because of my privileges, I did do really well. I am CEO, but I understand that what we did in the 60s in our country to have many more people going to college to go from 10% with the college degree now to over a third, that helped all races. And that, that is the most important message that the more we help poor children, the more we help all of us hmm. in the world, quite frankly, it helps us all. This is why I always use my, my example of the young woman from small town in North Carolina, Kismikia Corbett, our graduate who created with Bunny Graham that, that vaccine from with the Moderna, vaccine. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, saving lives. This is the first black woman in the world to create a vaccine. She's mm -hmm. now at Harvard, but that helps all of us. I, totally. I get goosebumps just telling you that. I got right? goosebumps. You know? <laughs> and when the girls of any race see her, this 35 year old Harvard professor now, they're going, wow, I could do that. I can do that. And that's, that's the point about inclusivity. As we talk about encouraging more women, people of color, first generation college, people with physical disabilities. In all these cases, we are elevating the human race. We are helping all of us understand the more we can help those who've not been connected to become connected to what works and to give them the talent to use to help solve the human problems, the better off we will all be. That, that's got to be the bottom line for all of us. Please tell us you're not going very far away, Freeman. Where will we be able to find you once Dr. Ashby takes over? Yeah. First of all, Dr. Valerie Ashby is a phenomenon. She's coming from Duke, mm. a polymer chemist who can quote Shakespeare. She's fabulous, <laughs> number one. He has asked to start August 1st. I'll actually be staying until July 31st, but I'm, I'm doing some things at Harvard. I, I enjoy working with senior leaders who come to their programs and I give some talks and seminars there, but I also uh, will be working with universities and colleges around the country on issues involving leadership and diversity, and most important, on student success. So this book, The Empowered University, I'm still signing around the country. The new book will be out uh, in the next year called The Resilient University, mm -hmm. which is building on what we've learned during the COVID period. So I'll, I'll be around uh, as a thought partner to people around. I'm, I'm looking forward to just connecting. The more places I go in universities, the more I learn and the more I can share with other people. That's mm. the idea. Keep learning. There's the message. Keep learning. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Freeman. Thank you for your time and for your insightful words. And, and hopefully, who knows, maybe your, your travels will bring you over to the UK. I appreciate that. And you must know, I've got two Rhodes Scholars right there now at Oxford. One is in young woman who is in nuclear engineering, getting a PhD. And the young man is getting a PhD in some quantitative area of economics. So I'm yeah. really proud of it. Yep, yep, yep. I'm not surprised at all. So, but you, that gives you even more of a reason to come over here. Yes. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And I know Oklahoma is very proud of you. I know they are. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Freeman. Thank you. I will, um, I'll send you a link to, I'll share the link Great. with you and your people once this is okay. up. I think it'll be probably um, 
July 7th, I think, is around Very the date we'll be sending it. I'll still be here. Thank okay. you and good All luck right. to you. All Thank right. Thank you so much, Freeman. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.